Welcome. Huh? I mean, really? I know, it's the it's the tie. I I, I know. <laughs> you guys are shocked, right? I take no credit for the ensemble. The praise goes to my beautiful bride. Um, and the fact that you can have a cell phone in the changing boot at Walmart and go, this blue or this blue? <laughs> this one or this one? That one looks kind of wild. I said, I like that one. The wild tie. It is a marvelous, glorious day. Um, we get to read about a miracle in the Bible. You all get to also witness the miraculous work of God in one of his children, the transforming process of a sinner's life. The first sermon from someone who had no college seminary, no spiritual upbringing, no degree, and barely graduated high school. But one of God's children whose true desire is the furthering of God's kingdom and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? A little history. I know about 12 years ago, the church was facing the other direction. I got up and gave my testimony. Um, I shared how God had used Psalm 51's David's plea for mercy and forgiveness and cleansing, and how, like David, if God restored me, I would teach, teach transgressors God's way. Sinners would be turned back to God. God's done his part. Now it's on me. My mother and wife sit over here this morning um, in true amazement. It, what a blessing for a mother to have seen her child so far from God to standing on a pulpit and preaching God's word. I can only imagine the joy in her heart. But keep in mind, if you have that sibling, that child, that somebody in your life who you think is so far from God, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. God will do the work. Maybe not in our time, but in his time. I believe that I am receiving the blessings that a grandmother prayed for me. How did this happen? You know, I don't recall the, the exact details, but long ago it was prophesied over me that words were spoken that I will preach and I will teach someday. I think they just said it because I like to talk a lot. <laughs> um, through the years I've shared this idea of preaching with those that were close to me. Um, I've waited. I shared it with Ken, which probably was a great idea. This is where I ended up now. Ken, matter of fact, he says, if God put it on your heart, you got to do it. Done. Okay, Ken. <laughs> um, just a few weeks ago, I shared with Cheryl as I drove her home. I said, you know, one of my goals is to be in the ministry, to preach. And boy, if this, just this year sometime, I could preach. I would have accomplished my goal. I'm not realizing that two weeks later this was going to happen. <laughs> now what do I do? Um, I found myself backed in Exodus with Moses. God's calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Moses' first thought in his mind to God was, Who am I? Who am I that I will lead your people? Who am I? I thought also that I will preach God's word. I mean, kept reading. Moses is still trying to get out of doing this. He's God's showing him miracles, throwing staffs down there, turning into snakes. Leprosy comes and goes. Moses says, you know, I, I don't talk real good, though, God. All them excuses, God summed it up like this, and he did for me. And this is the scripture that's gotten me through this, these last two weeks of preparing for this. Um, in verse 12, he says, now go. 
I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Boy, those words would have been great raising a kid a few years ago, knowing what to say. But I, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. These are God's words. So, what qualifies me to stand up before you today and preach the words? See, I've had no seminary, had no training, had, right? Remember that God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the call. This is a great saying, but see, I needed more than that. Just a little bit more, God, than, than, than a catchphrase. Um, about a year ago, God called me to be an elder in this church. Um, you voted me into that position. Um, in a position that I take very, very seriously. Um, Paul's letters to Timothy, his young leader. See, I'm a young leader. Young in leading, but not young in age. Um, I went to this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, um, and I've held on to this. I'll share this with you. We're in 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verse, tw- verse 9. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance and for which we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially to those who believe. Command these things. Do not let anyone look, on, look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and purity until I come. Devote yourselves to public reading of the scriptures, to preaching, to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. It was the verses that don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. See, the enemy wants to come in and remind me that I'm young and and being a leader. Devote yourself to the public reading of scriptures, preaching and teaching. There's my authority. As an elder, preach. Do not neglect your gift. Man, I don't want God to ever look at me and say, you neglected your gift. How many of you out there are neglecting a gift God gave you? Don't. Don't neglect it. Also, it talks in that scripture about do this so others may see your progress. My neighbor sits in the back row right now. He has watched my entire progress from staggering down his driveway, telling him, I think I'm getting close to this Jesus guy, <laughs> to standing on a stage and preaching God's word to you. I thank all of you from the bottom of my heart that has raised me up the past couple weeks in prayer, have taken me to the throne, and my wife, because the enemy loves to come in and cause strife here. Um, we have felt you know, that protection. We have felt that, that binding of the enemy. Our, he's given me clarity of what he wanted me to speak, and I give credit to you guys for doing that. Um, let's pray. Father, as we go to your word this morning, we just invite the Holy Spirit to come in here, dwell amongst us, and teach us your word, Father. Would you reveal to us what it is you want from this message, what, what you're trying to, to teach us? I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, we're in the book of Mark, right? Now, before I go there, this 
this is not some sacred page that you have to keep pristine. Please, write in your Bibles. Underline them. Highlight them. They make special highlighters. Black ones don't work. And if you use the wrong highlighter, you, you can highlight actually about 23 verses all through about four pages. <laughs> I guess God was trying to show me I needed to read more. Um, this is a legacy. Someday your kids are going to pick up your Bible when you're gone. Your grandchild. Are they going to see blank pages with nothing written in it? Are they going to see how God spoke to you? How God moved you? What God revealed to you? I like to go to thrift shops. And I always go to the thrift shop, go to, go to the book department, I look for a Bible. And they're in there. They're all lined up. Everybody's donated them. And you know what? I have rarely ever found one that I opened up and there were pages highlighted and circled and notes written in them. Because if it is, I'm buying it because I want to see what God revealed to that person that I didn't even know. Write in your Bibles. Leave a legacy through this. Because I tell you what, you can't leave it on the smartphone. Even the FBI can't get into that one. Um, we're in the book of Mark. Mark was written by John Mark, not one of the 12 apostles or disciples, but he did enter, uh, go on Paul's first missionary journey with him in the book of Acts. Um, this book was written to the Christians in Rome about 55, 65 AD. It's believed that this is the first gospel written as the other writers, plagiarized, I mean, used all but 31 of his, his verses. Mark records 18 of the miracles of Jesus Christ, of the 35 he did. Keep in mind that two miracles appear in all four Gospels, the resurrection of Christ and the feeding of the 5,000. If God says it four times, we better dig in and see why he included that in all four Gospels, right? All Gospel writers agree that this miracle formed the climax of the Galilean ministry. It was the end of the apostles' preaching tour. This miracle also appears in Matthew 14, Luke 9, and John 6. I'll read. The apostles had gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered to them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much money on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they find out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. And he broke, um, and he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the twelve disciples picked up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces of fish and bread. The number of men 
who had eaten that day was 5,000. I got a little different way of preaching. Really, that's my first way. <laughs> We're going to go kind of verse by verse here and dig into each verse and see what, what we can learn from each verse. Um, verse 30 says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done. Okay, so Jesus has sent the disciples out. They're out preaching. They're out healing. He gave them authority. He commissioned them. Right? Also had arranged for them to meet back at this place. This isn't an accident they're here. Okay? Um, Mark is the only author that uses the term apostle or delegate or messenger or one sent forth with orders. Um, and he only uses it here in the entire Gospel of Mark. Um, it's a very appropriate title as they're returning from their official um, mission as Jesus' commissioned representatives. Keep in mind, this is not an official title. It just gives a sense of their missionary work. They come up to him to give him a, a, a complete report of their trip. Um, there's no indication of the mood, but we can summarize that eagerness and enthusiasm had to be a fair inference, right? I mean, these guys are out doing work, preaching, seeing miracles, and they come back, and they're telling Jesus all this, right? Um, Jesus' evaluation of the work isn't given here. Um, he doesn't tell them, great job. I wonder if the disciples were disappointed. All he said was, you guys look tired, <laughs> They're telling them all they had done. I'm sure they were looking for praise and adoration, weren't they? Would we? Verse 31, then, because so many of them were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. This isn't the first time Jesus had these guys go without food. Back in Mark 3, verse 20, the crowd gathered. He and the disciples didn't even weren't able to eat. Following Jesus as one of his disciples, you're missing meals, man. I tell you. As they draw away, Jesus is not recommending concealment. They're not going to go hide. They're going off to this quiet place, desert. It would be a, a solitary, lonely, uninhabited part of the desert, wilderness, um, a pasture. Uh, the rocky shores around the Sea of Galilee, especially on that eastern shore, um, would have been such a place. This was to be a short period of rest and relaxation, not a cessation of activities. Um, for the continued effectiveness of the ministry, every worker has to now and again stop, take a breath, and relax a little bit. Why were they withdrawing? Well, John's death, first of all. Jesus is in mourning. The twelves. Just return, this religious excitement is following them from this, this preaching tour that they were on. Crowds were e really eager to learn, how is Jesus going to deal with Herod's death? Or, excuse me, John the Baptist's death by Herod. See, Jesus could have easily stimulated a movement here against Herod. This crowd is ready to jump and go. Where this, Jesus deliberately takes them out of Herod's territory. These groups are coming and going and coming and going, right? Visitors are drawn by Jesus' growing fame. Um, there's a number of groups that are coming simply because the Passover is getting close. I believe some of them were also very politically motivated. They wanted to catch Jesus, didn't they? Verse 32, so they went away by themselves in a boat, in a boat to a solitary place. Here's the boat. This is, the, this is an exact replica of the boat that would have been used 
Remember, they were down in the southern part of the Sea of Galilee. They were down there watching Jesus put demons into pigs and running off cliffs. God's got a sense of humor. Um, they would have sailed this all the way up. Okay. Um, Luke tells us that they withdrew to a city called Bethsaida, um, which is located on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, just above its entry into the Sea of Galilee. Um, they didn't go into the city because it says this feeding took place in a solitary place, this desert. So they were up around this area. We have Capernaum up here. We have uh, Bethsaida here. The Jordan River comes right in the middle. Um, verse 33 says that many saw them leaving, recognized them, and ran on foot from, uh, from all the towns and got ahead of them. Jesus is under close observation right now. This crowd watches the course that they're on. and It becomes really apparent where they're going. The speed and the direction stimulated this crowd to, to race around the head of the lake. See, the fast guys would have been there first. I expect the Ganges would be right up front. Me and Bill Carnes. We probably would not be so far towards the front. Um, these people are coming from everywhere, not just every, they've been following the disciples. Um, this trip by sea is four miles, straight line distance. By land, it's eight miles. I got to go up and around. How did these people get there ahead of them? One, they were bad sailors, which I don't think was the case. No wind. Or a contrary wind. Contrary wind meaning it was blowing in their face and they're going to sail against us. This does work. We just tack. Not jibe. Tack. Trying to learn my sailing terms. Um, (laughs) um, I figured the disciples have got to be hungry and tired and exhausted. I wonder what their attitudes would have been right about now. As they know they're going to go over there and get some rest. But the wind ain't even blowing. I know where I would be. Hungry and tired. I probably would have had a little attitude. Um, doing God's work is important. Jesus recognizes this, that to do it effectively, they've got to have this period of rest and renewal. Jesus' disciples are finding it really, 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 really hard at the time. It's getting harder and harder to do this. For your notes, I put it this way. Ministry and discipleship is work. But Jesus wants us to rest and refuel. Rest and refuel. Verse 34, when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. So he lands on this hillside, goes up there, sits down. This shows his, his, his eagerness to want to teach. This assembly is all crazy, right? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. If you can imagine this flock of sheep going every direction, across the river. There's got to be some dumb ones, I bet, floating down the river and... Right there. Despite the unbelief that he's encountering at this time, his desire to be alone with his disciples, the sight of this people without a shepherd stirred his heart, gave him a feeling of compassion, a feeling of pity. It made him yearn to want to help them. Mark is the only gospel that records because they were like sheep without a shepherd as a reason for his compassion. Jesus viewed this not as a group, but as individuals. It's about each and every sheep. Matthew 9 says they were like they were harassed and helpless. Jesus saw that the religious leaders of the time were not meeting the people's spiritual needs. He began to teach them at once. See, this is his central point in Jesus' work was to teach. 
for it was their greatest need. His teaching ministry continued till late. He taught them about the kingdom of God. The crowd was a pitiful flock of sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knew that they were in grave danger. Jesus was the shepherd that could teach them what they needed to know to keep from straying from God. Jesus wants to teach us what we need to know so we don't stray from his Father. There's so many other good scriptures on this good shepherd, the shepherd. We teach it in Sunday school, Psalm 23. But one that really touched me this week was out of Isaiah 40:11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those who have young. What a wonderful picture of a caring, loving father. He's, he's holding right there, right next to him. I put it this way in your notes. Jesus is our shepherd. He is the one taking care of this flock. We can lean on that. Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already getting very late. So we're into evening time, and there's a couple different evenings. There's a 3 p.m. evening, which would be their first evening, and there's a second evening, which would have been the sunset. I believe we're at this first evening, starting to get this dark. The disciples are like, hmm. Hour after hour he teaches, unmindful to the, the physical needs of the people for food. Um, the longer he teaches, the, the more tense the disciples have been. They approach Jesus, apparently while he's teaching, with their well-meaning suggestion. This is a remote place. They're getting anxious. Um, if something don't happen immediately, um, the people are going to be in trouble. So Jesus is teaching, and the disciples are going, you go tell him. Oh, you go tell him. You go tell him. I'm not telling him. You tell him. Go interrupt. Hey, let's get Mikey. <laughs> interrupt him right in the middle of his teaching, Right? See, they need immediate action taken. How often do I, when I say I, I mean we, but I'll say I, think that Jesus might have forgotten. Jesus forgot. How often do you think that? You forgot about that person. And how often do we demand immediate action from him? God, heal that person now. God, take action now. Right now, we demand it. God knows our needs. He knows everything we need. He knows it. We can't remind him of anything he's forgotten. It's our faith that's the problem. Verse 36, send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Send them away. The disciples were motivated by concern, right? But they were prompted by natural considerations, not faith. See, they're still not getting it. They've been out doing miraculous work, but they still don't recognize Jesus for who he is. Maybe like some today. We see Jesus' work, but do we see him for who he is? They must go out to the surrounding countryside. Food's not easy to get. They're out in the country. Disciples know that they're going to have to travel. They're going to have to go to people's fields. They're going to have to go to hamlets or villages to purchase food. They wait any longer, it's going to be too late. See, we all got those people in our lives who are hungry and in need of food. It's getting late in the day. Romans 8, 19 tells us that the creation waits, it groans with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. 
we can't send them away. We have to show them Jesus. Are we doing this? Are we showing them his love? Are we prompted by the natural or are we prompted by faith? For your notes, I put it this way. We must engage people where they're at. Don't forget, our commission is to go to the world. Go to the world. Not send them away. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months' wages. Are we to go out and spend that much on bread and give it to them? Catch this. All four Gospels record this identical command indicating that this startling order was unforgettably registered in their memory. See, this command rejects their idea. It throws them back on their own resources. But they had nothing adequate to meet their needs. Therefore, should they go buy food? As their questions suggest that he was demanding the impossible. Philip figured it out right away. Doing the math. Today's money. We're talking about $25,000. Any of you who have put a wedding on? Know how much it would cost to feed 5,000 people, right? You give them something to eat, he says. See, this takes us back. This takes us back to 2 Kings, right? So see if this story sounds familiar. A man came from Belshazzar, which actually means God in three parts. Ironic, right? Not. Being a man of God, um, I'm sorry, a man came from Belshazzar, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of the new grain, and says, give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his service asked. But Elijah answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and they will have some left over. Then he set it before them and they ate and they had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. This is the same story that took place back then. The same one. God did it again. Verse 38, how many loaves do you have, he said. Go and see. When they found out, that they said, we have five, two small fish. How many do you have? He meets her incredulous question with a practical one. Go and see. With this question, the people who had been absorbed in the teaching suddenly realize, hey, we haven't eaten. Andrew brings a report that a lad has food. A lad, a young boy, brought his lunch. And they took it from him. The lunchable that mom packed for him. 5,000 people take off and they don't remember to bring food except one little boy who brings his lunchable. Jesus is going to take this lunchable and do something miraculous with it. Food would have been something like this. They would have been these. This is poor people food. I mean, this, this is our, our food, right? Biscuits and fish. What kind of fish? We're, we're a fishing community. So I had to look, say, well, what type of fish does the Sea of Galilee have at the time? Tilapia, sardines, and catfish. And we know Levitical law probably would have kept the catfish off the menu for the evening. I think the young lad had two sardines. Because I know Dad probably would have had that big filet of tilapia, right? They would have eaten this, this, this loaf with... The fish is a relish on top of it, either salted or preserved in some manner. Um, 
It's interesting that later on these baskets are going to be filled, these small baskets. These baskets that the Jewish, Jewish people carried, they put the provisions in there, put their food in there, so they wouldn't have to eat the Gentiles' food. Well, they had their baskets, but nobody had put food in them. Verse 39, then Jesus directed them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Jesus says, everybody sit down in view of the inadequacy of food to test their faith. Why would they get into this position if there's no food? Reclining is how he had them sit. This is the posture, especially in an open-air eating. Um, standing would have been total disorder. When we see the word green grass in there, this is telling us what season it is. Right after the spring rains come, everything gets, gets, gets green. After that, it withers up and dries. Verse 40, he had them sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He has them sit in ranks like garden beds, very well-arranged garden plots, such an arrangement would not have been strange. Um, they would have eaten their sacred meals in Jerusalem during the festivals the same way. It makes for very, very, very easy order of distribution of food. Remember, our God is a God of order, not chaos. There's no way you could have taken this many people and done it without some sort of order. Um, Jesus' life has been examined by family, friends, King Herod. No one appreciated him yet for who he was. The disciples were still pondering, confused, unbelieving, not realizing yet what Jesus could do and how he could provide. They were so preoccupied with the immensity of the task, they couldn't see what was possible with God. It made me ponder, do I let what seems impossible about Christianity keep me from believing? Hmm. For your notes. I put God as a God of order and provision. You see, a situation that seems impossible with human resources is simply an opportunity for God. Let's never forget that. I pray that those impossible situations, those things that seem like it could never happen, that we focus on that cross. We focus on the blood of Christ and what he's done. Look at the cross. We look at Jesus not at the problem. Taking the five loaves in 40, verse 41, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He divided the fish among them all. Jesus speaks a blessing before this. We see him here, raising it up to, to the Father to thank him. A typical Jewish prayer, meal prayer, would have been just like this. Blessed art thou, art, art thou, our Lord, our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. How many times that prayer has gone up? He breaks the loaves in, into pieces. Um, none of the Gospels explicitly explain where this multiplication took place. All we know is that the disciples came up and had their baskets filled, and Jesus keeps handing it out, keeps handing it out. Uh, it's believed maybe that the, it, it took place right there in his hands, the same hands that stood with nails driven through him. Now he's multiplying it, right? That's part of being a new preacher. You lose track where you're at. <laughs> um, everybody was filled that day, it tells us. Um, they ate and were satisfied. This was no scanty meal. This was like a G-R-E-F-C Potluck <laughs> is a banquet, right? Um, verse 43, the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. Some commentaries believe that this miracle 
was greater than the one that we see when Jesus led his people around in, in the desert feeding a manna. Manna only lasted for one day. You couldn't keep the manna overnight or it would go bad. So all they had enough was for one day. I believe Jesus is demonstrating that I have, have come so they may have life and they may have life abundancy. This is a great example of abundancy. There was 12 baskets left over. 12. All the people. How many people? It says 5,000 men. Each man had brought his wife, right, or a child. We're talking upwards of ten to 15,000 people probably would have been here. Jewish law says that the men sit over here and when they're in public and eat, and the women and children sit over here. Huh? This miracle, this creating something from nothing, there's only one person that can do this. I don't care what... The evolutionists will tell you. They will have you believe that we can create something from nothing. It can't. Only God can do this. Jesus is demonstrating clearly right here that he is God. End of story. For your notes, I put it just that way. Jesus is God. In conclusion here, the disciples seen the glasses half empty from the human perspective, and they were right. There wasn't enough food to go around. How often do we know what Jesus says about supplying our needs? I invite you to write this scripture down. I, I won't read through it. It's Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Read it this week. Dwell on it. God knows what you need, and he will provide your food, your clothing, your shelter. You need not worry about one thing, is what the scripture is telling you. But we still don't have faith that he'll do it. Jesus instructed the disciples to bring the loaves to him. He told them how to sit down in groups. He told them to prepare for a meal. This was testing their faith. They had no idea where the food was coming from. They did what he said simply because he told them to. He tells us in his word to do something. That should be it. Done. Don't question it. Do it. All four Gospels give thanks. Um, tell us that God, that Jesus gave thanks to God for supplying their needs. This should be our attitude towards God. We're to give thanks for everything, knowing that everything good comes from him. Even those things that we think happen for the bad, they happen for the good and the glory of God. Therefore, we should approach God with this attitude of gratitude for what he's doing and what he's done. So how can we apply this? How can we put this into somehow something we can use in our life? I broke it down this way. Three things. Number one, we must always remember that Jesus is more powerful than any problem we face. Instead of focusing on the problem, let's focus on our relationship with Christ. He told us in John 16 that you in this world you will have tribulations, but I have overcome the world. Let's focus on Jesus. Two, no matter how little it seems, we must be willing to offer God whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's our talent, no matter how small it looks to us, God will use it. He will take these ordinary things and create extraordinary things. We must never believe that our resources are too little for God. He delights in taking a seemingly insignificant person and doing miraculous things with him. Stand here as proof. See, God often begins with what we have for his glory, no matter how small it is. So two, let's give what we have to God and watch what he does with it. Let's focus on Jesus. Let's give God what we have. 
Three, Jesus cares about our spiritual needs 100%, but he also cares about our physical needs. We have to take care of this temple. We cannot run ourselves to that ragged edge every day. It is hard, hard to do in this world. But I pose this question for you. When that cell phone runs out, how fast do you find a recharging port? When your spiritual batteries run out, how fast do you find something to recharge it? This account of the feeding of the 5,000 is a wonderful, wonderful picture. You know, Let's find that recharging spot for our lives. So let's focus on Jesus. Let's give God what we have, no matter how small it is. And let's find a recharging spot. God cares about us. He wants us to experience his companionship. He has the power to perform miraculous, miraculous, and more. I'm going to ask the worship team. We're going to come up. We're going to sing one song when we go. Um, it's one of my, my favorites. Um, I grew up without a father. Actually, I had two or three that tried to be fathers. But I have one now, and he is good. And he is so good. So let's sing praises to him.